Welcome back to the next segment of our Ukraine-Russia episode, and we're going to talk about the fog of war here. So everything that's going on right now with the war, it's very murky. There's all kinds of things being said on either side, particular footage. You don't know what's real, what's fake, whatever. So the point of this is to not determine exactly what's going on right now. I have no idea, and I'm not going to make any definitive, bold claims here. But it's to take everything that we've been through and then look at the things going on right now or what's being said to go on, and then combine them and figure out which side you think is being more forthcoming. Because more often than not, people who go to great lengths to deceive and blame everyone else for their crimes that they're committing in incredibly hypocritical fashion, well, they tend not to change so easily and start telling the truth. Or if they do, perhaps there's other motivations that go with it, and you might want to be a little suspect. Just a personal opinion. So I don't really know what to think. I've heard lots of different things. And we're going to focus less on the mainstream media in the West, because you can find that out in about 2.5 seconds. It's everywhere being ram down your throat at any given moment. So we're going to look a little bit more at the other side of the story. And again, not saying that they are right or wrong, but you just consider where all the chips fall for you on these two sides. So if we're going to talk about two different sides, there's also a gradient. So if you want to go from number one to number 10, one being the most pro-West, Putin is a mixture of Hitler and Stalin to one, and Zelensky is the bravest patriot of all time and basically like a new messiah, saving the West from destruction and chaos and the evilest of evils in Vladimir Putin. Then if you shift to the other side, 10 being the most Eastern side, which would be kind of like a Putin Anon worship, right? Like, uh, like QAnon, but for Vladimir Putin. The Anon, maybe, I don't know. And this would be where Putin is playing 20D chess with all flawless victories, and Russia is the best, rah, rah, rah. So there's all the different gradients in between. Now, I would say I tend to see way more of the former being promoted than the latter. And if people just mention objective facts, then sometimes people on the Western side accuse the other side mentioning these facts of being the number 10 Putin rah 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 he is the new god right but is that really the case it's almost like if you said something positive about Trump x amount of years ago you were a QAnon Trump worshiper so that is also another thing to consider here on the flip side if somebody is critical of Putin it doesn't mean that they're pro west and pro Zelensky and a slave to the mainstream media and establishment. So we need to think about the gradients here as well. So if we think about one to four being more on the Western side, you can see the gradient. So maybe perhaps outlets like Epoch Times, uh, Sky News, Fox News, maybe a little bit more to the one and two. They get the neocons wanting to create war against Putin and the people like Sean Hannity or whatever versus the Tucker Carlson. There's kind of like a little battle within there. As far as I know, I don't watch Fox News all the time. I'm aware of what comes out here and there. And then there's places perhaps like the Daily Wire or something like that. So I'm not making any judgments on any of these channels. I'm just saying that these tend to be the various opinions. And there is a gradient to the Western side, right? The Daily Wire and people like Candace Owens might be more on the four side, more towards five, maybe even at times rather than one or two. So those are things to consider. Then on the opposite side, the gradient from six to 10, on the more pro-Russian side of the conflict, you'd have outlets like RT News, or there's even uh, news channels from India I've seen. There's various people reporting on YouTube that are kind of pro-Russian. And then there's the Orthodox Church channel that we talked about that seems to be more on that side of the conflict. And then there's a number of independent researchers who we will mention, but are mostly progressives, but they're very much against the two-party system. They tend to be critical of Trump, but they also tend to distinguish him between the crazy neocons who influence him. And the basic sense that I get is they seem to think that Trump's instincts were pretty good on the whole, but then his advisors wouldn't convince him otherwise, and he's got his own battles that he had. 
and round and round it goes. So I think there's probably a middle ground between the Epic Times version and the RT News versions and these independent journalists on either side. And I don't think they necessarily need to be, I don't want to say opposed to each other, but they don't need to be enemies of each other. That would be my hope. I don't know if that will happen, but the question is, where do you fall on the spectrum? I don't know. That's up for you to decide. Let's move on. So one more time to reiterate, I'm putting the sources together for a file, but for now you have the YouTube playlist and the links, and then James's blog that has other resources, and most of that is what we're drawing from here. So to begin, let's wrap up with some of the content that is featured on James's blog post about the conflict, and there's some interesting interviews that I think will set the tone for what we're going to go into and examine as we go through this, and they come from various sources that would seemingly be not pro-Russian, but they're saying some interesting things that are not exactly in lockstep with the mainstream narrative on the West. So the first thing I would turn your attention to is none other than Fox News. And they had an interview with one Colonel McGregor, and they asked his opinion on the situation and the quote-unquote invasion by Russia. Now, I looked a little bit more into this McGregor guy. I don't know a whole lot about him, but apparently he supported the Iraq war, but he was not a fan of how it was handled. He criticized it for its mishandling, basically. Now, his take on the situation when it first started to develop. So the interview is from March 4th of this year, and we're going to give a synopsis of what he says. And basically he says that the Russians are avoiding interrupting power and communications with their mission. So they're not taking out power grids or the internet or anything like that. He says that they're mingling with the population. And so he's saying they're not being hostile to the regular population. And then he also reports that the Ukrainian forces are using humans as shields to avoid destruction as the Russians don't want to kill civilians, so that makes it very hard for them if the civilians are being used as human shields. Now, if that's true or not, I don't know, but that's his opinion. And he says that Putin has worked hard to keep the areas that they're traveling through mostly intact. And he says at this point, there's surprisingly little damage And of course, this is much less damage than we inflicted when we go into other nations like Iraq or whatever, and we just tend to level everything, as far as I understand. And of course, refer back to that Madeleine Albright clip that we mentioned at the very beginning, which is actually very strangely fitting that she has died recently, and it's almost like Victoria Newland is the new version of her. Maybe not the same positions, but the same types of influence. Now, fun fact I found out about Albright. Apparently, she was a co-investor with Jacob Rothschild and also George Soros on various projects that related to Africa. So good people to be involved with, I'm sure, especially the latter. And apparently there's some accusations of her spreading ethnic hatred and disrespect to victims of the war in Kosovo. And I'm not an expert on all these affairs. You can look into them more on your own time. But again, are there a lot of rotten things about NATO's involvement in these that have a lot of patterns to what's going on now? Those are the accusations I hear. I'm not an expert, like I said. Check it out on your own. Anyways, back to Colonel McGregor and his opinion. He says that he thinks that the Russian forces were actually being, quote-unquote, too gentle when they first entered and that the general conflict itself could have ended, quote, days ago if Zelensky had accepted a neutral Ukraine. And he says that the Russians aren't seizing territories, but are destroying Ukrainian forces, in other words, Azov Nazi battalions, not civilians, even though the latter might be used as human shields. And he says, quote, I think Zelensky is a puppet, and he is putting huge numbers of his own population at unnecessary risk, And quite frankly, most of what comes out of Ukraine is debunked as lies within 24 to 48 hours. And then the host says, wait, Colonel McGregor, you don't think Zelensky's a hero? And then McGregor just basically laughs at him and says that if he wants to do something heroic, he should neutralize Ukraine, which is good for both USA and Russia and create the buffer that each side wants. And then the host says, you know, Colonel, I'm inclined to disagree with you. So it reminds us of that French citizen that lived in Ukraine coming back to France 
and talking about how Zelensky's a puppet and the French media is like, wait, what? Zelensky's a puppet? What are you talking about? Ukraine isn't a bastion of democracy and freedom? And she's just kind of laughing about it, right? So it's the same thing. And you wonder how many times she was invited back on the show. And you wonder how many times McGregor will be invited back on the show. He's been on there a lot, as far as I can tell. I haven't watched a bunch of his commentary on it. But the uh, Fox News host was certainly surprised by what he was saying. So what he said is going to be reiterated by some of the sources we're going to talk about later. You can say it's Russian propaganda if you'd like. All right, so let's move on to another video on James's blog post. And this is one by a U.S. volunteer named Henry Locke. And his testimony is he was part of the Georgian National 102nd Ukrainian Territorial Defense Division or whatever faction. Now, he uses some colorful language in the video, which we won't repeat, but nevertheless, he tells us that his base that he was at got messed up. We'll have a toned down translation. And that he was with Americans and British people and Canadians. I'm not exactly sure the whole context of what he's saying, but what he's saying happened to them is what's more important. Now, he mentioned something. I wasn't exactly sure what he was talking about specifically, but it sounds like whoever he was with was counting casualties of other people as their own, probably to inflate their numbers, something like that. I wasn't exactly sure what he meant specifically. It's one of those videos where he seems a little unnerved, so some aspects, like we mentioned, are a little fuzzy. But he said that the group that they were with I guess was part of the Ukrainian army. I'm assuming they were trying to send them to Kiev, but without weapons or supplies or with minimal uh, guns and ammunitions. It sounds a lot like if you've ever seen the movie Enemy at the Gates and they send the peons up to the front lines at Stalingrad. So this is World War II. This is the irony. This is the Soviets fighting against the Nazis and they send the Vasily sniper guy who has only bullets. I think the other guy has the rifle so basically, they're using people as cannon fodder and making them fight at the front lines first and giving them minimal amounts of ammunition and weaponry. And they're basically going to die. And if they turn back, then the higher up officers shoot them. And basically, that's what this guy says. He says that if we didn't go, they were told they were going to be shot in the back if they didn't go to the front lines with these minimal amounts of ammunition. So I just find that very strange. But now the situation is reversed. It's Ukrainian Nazis trying to force these other troops to go to fight against Russians. But instead, the Russians are now Orthodox Christian, or at least that's what the Putin regime is connecting its mission to, whether you believe that to be authentic or not. So Mr. Locke continues, and he says that if you can get to a border to try to get out of Ukraine, He's warning people to not show signs of having any military background or get rid of your kit. I'm not a military dude. I don't know exactly what all the lingo means. But he's basically saying if you are identified as having some of this experience or some sort of you know, kit supplies, they're going to pull you out and send you to the front lines to fight the Russians, and they're going to shoot you if you don't go do it, apparently. So whether you believe this or not, it is consistent with some of the reports of the Ukrainian army trying to threaten other people and intimidate them and shoot their own people if they don't do what they want, and they're obsessed with killing the Russians, right? So it's pretty screwed up if this story is true. So he says that they got out by hiding and dumping their supplies and acting like they're part of the Red Cross. Some people helped them out. And so he says, quote, people need to stop coming here. It's a trap, and they're not letting you effing leave. And then if you did come and you're stuck, don't try to leave on foot. You should try to hide in a car and maybe you can hide all your equipment or just ditch it if you're a volunteer. And he says, quote, it's a mess. It's a trap. And he has multiple people who confirm his story. So you can watch that video on James's blog post in the links. Continuing, there's two other videos I wanted to mention that are testimonies of Ukrainians being liberated and they're being asked about what happened and their experiences with the Ukrainian army and also the Russian army, which has liberated them. So take them for what you will. Could be propaganda, could be mistranslation. You can say what you'd like. But if you take them at their word, it's very interesting. So in one video, there's various Ukrainians interviewed and they look really shaken up because 
They wouldn't expect their own army to be shooting at them, but that's what they say was happening. And they're using some not-so-nice language either, and you can imagine why. And that they were trying to hide in the basement during some of the combat, and that the Ukrainian army would not let them leave the city. So why does the Ukrainian army want civilians in the city when combat warfare is going on? It would seem that they would want to use them as, like the colonel said, human shields, or they don't have a problem if they die because they can show that footage on Western media and try to get more help from the rest of the world. So when people are trying to say that the Russians are going in and killing all these civilians, and it's actually the Ukrainian army that's putting them all in danger, that's a big problem. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the Russians trying to evacuate civilians and get them to safe territories. There's some testimonies about that. We'll talk about that soon. Now, some of these people are saying Zelensky wants dead bodies to sell everything as a humanitarian crisis. But I would ask, is it really Zelensky? Is it actually the Nazis and perhaps the NATO high-ups that have no problem conducting this type of warfare and farming out Nazi camps to go kill their enemy and promote worldwide abortion? You can be the judge of that. But the Ukrainian citizens in this video make it very clear that the Ukrainian army, quote, wanted to keep using them as human shields. Moving on to another video testimony. There are another group of citizens that are telling you what happened during combat. And this old lady, this babushka type lady, is not a happy grandma. And she will let you know it. And so she says, quote, It was the Russian guys who helped us out of the basement. She says, look, they're like our brothers. They were worried about us so that not a single person died. And this Ukrainian woman said that someone in their community was having a stroke and that, quote, the Russian guys took care of all of ours. And she says, where were our Ukrainian rescuers? Where were they? And then she's asked how the Ukrainian military treated them. And she says, brutal, brutal. They locked us in basements, just like the other people testified and that they would pound and pound on the floor above, and I'm assuming that's to make noise to maybe draw attacks by the Russians, because if you are looking for Ukrainian military and you hear a bunch of noise, you're probably going to investigate it, right? And she says that later they were yelling at all of these Ukrainians, again, their own army, to, quote, get the F out of the house using foul language, etc., etc. And she says, is that normal? There were children and old people there. And they were kicked out of their house. And so apparently the Ukrainian army was kicking civilians out of their own homes and they took up their positions in the civilian houses. So it sounds like they were herding people into basements, maybe hoping that they would be attacked and die. Or maybe they were trying to sort of protect them, but they would rather have them take over these civilian houses to probably uh, make the Russians think twice about firing upon them. I don't know. You can come up with all sorts of theories. But the point is, these Ukrainian people seem very surprised and very upset at how their own army was treating them, and probably were equally surprised at how the Russian people were treating them once the fighting was over in whatever area they were in. And she says, more importantly, that these atrocities were the, quote, Ukrainian guys, you hear? She says, a woman was burned down there, I'm assuming in the basement. She says, it's unbelievable. We know the history, but we have never seen such atrocity. Then she makes the sign of the cross and says, may the Lord forgive me. And then she says, let them be offended or not. Meaning the people who are hearing her story, if they don't believe her and are offended by the idea of Ukrainian soldiers attacking their own, she says, I don't really care. She says, we're telling the truth. Now, you can compare this with the footage from that man we talked about, Patrick Lancaster. He's got a lot of videos, so you'd have to sort through a number of them. But there's plenty of the same types of testimony from Ukrainian citizens saying that the Ukrainian army was firing upon them or using them as human shields. And a lot of the fighting in the places he's investigating is Mariupol. And this is where probably the most intense fighting has happened. And basically, the sources we've mentioned have said that this is where the Azov Battalion had their headquarters. And what I've heard reported, whether you believe it or not, I don't know if it's true, that they were taking over civilian institutions like hospitals and clearing it out and setting it up as their own military base. 
So is this the context for destroyed hospitals? It's actually because it was being used as a military base for the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. Now, if you look up Mariupol on a map, it's in the southeastern part of Ukraine, and it's a port city on the Azov Sea. I wonder if that has something to do with the battalion's namesake. But you get there through Crimea and, what is it, the Black Sea? So I advise people to check out a map and just look up the Donbass region that has the two republics in it, and then find the city of Mariupol, and then see where Kiev is and how far away it is. And these are the major areas that people are talking about, and we'll mention a little bit more as we go through this, or at least what some people are saying about what's happening. But back to the point, Patrick Lancaster is filming in the Donbass area, and the Mariupol stuff is really the most hardcore stuff, and it makes sense because that's where the largest concentration of the Azov forces are that have probably been firing on Donbass and trying to take it over, right? Now, that's if this side of the narrative is true. We'll let you decide. Still, the fog of war, we're not really sure. But as long as Patrick Lancaster is being true to his footage, then obviously there's a lot going on there. All right, let's move on and talk about some different sources. Now, to name a few, some we've talked about already or just briefly mentioned them, there is one Ava Bartlett, and again, if you go to a YouTube page in her About section, she has a link to her website, and you can see she's won various awards, has an impressive resume, and she was first notably involved in the Israeli-Gaza conflicts and documenting them. And she was very involved in the Syrian war against Assad and documenting that and the destruction in Aleppo. And she had made a trip to the Donbass area for like three weeks or so. We've mentioned this before. And she witnessed the shelling and the attacks by the Ukrainian Nazified government and talked to many civilians about it, which is very consistent with all the other things that we have looked at and heard about. So you can take it for what you will. And then there's some other gentlemen from this group called the Duran, and the two main figures of that group are Alex Christophero and Alexander Mercurius. They have Greek last names, I guess. One of them lives in Athens. One has a British accent, but I'm assuming has Greek ethnicity based upon his name. Now, they don't really talk about religious stuff, but one of them did mention going to church. So I don't know if they're Greek Orthodox or whatnot. And then there's another man, Gonzalo Lira. He lives in Ukraine. He's an American with a Chilean background. I guess he went to film school and has an education from Dartmouth. And then we mentioned the Jimmy Dore show and that French journalist who made the Donbass documentary. Now, most of these people seem to be quote unquote real progressives in the sense that they're against the Democratic Party and the neocons. And I would assume the socialist crazies like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders. And the comparison we've made before is they're a much higher level version, perhaps, of Tim Pool um, or those types of views, I guess. Progressive, probably liberal, but still don't like the hypocrisy and have a certain sense of justice and right and wrong, despite you know still being in, I guess, the enlightenment mindset, if you will. I could be wrong, but those were the quote-unquote vibes I got from these folks. So the point being, they're from all over the place. They're from America, they're from Greece, they're from, I guess, Britain or maybe Canada. Uh, some have traveled around, and obviously uh, they're all Russian bots, of course. Now, like I said, they seem to be pretty level-headed in the analysis and have corroborated a lot of things I've looked into. I'm not endorsing everything they say. I don't even know if they're right on the stuff that's going on right now with the war. They seem to take the viewpoint that Russia is winning the war. Obviously, there's many people disputing that. I don't know. Take it for what you will, but I do think the analysis is interesting, especially the things prior to current events. So the first thing we're going to dissect a little bit is an interview with Ava Bartlett and Gonzalo Lira. It's in the playlist. You can check it out if you'd like. Now, I will say everything that he said about the history or the figureheads involved in fomenting this crisis has been accurate as far as I can tell. 
his analysis of the situation living in Ukraine. You can dispute that if you'd like. Some things he says, I'm not exactly sure where he's getting it from, or I wonder about, I don't really know what to think. He has some figures on how many troops he thinks there are and some of the losses. Like I said, I don't know where he's getting all this info. You can agree with it or disagree with it or think it's wrong. I'm not sure, but to sum it up, I will give him the benefit of the doubt until his testimony is proven otherwise and certain statements I take with caution. But to call them outright lies or disinfo, that would need to be proven to me. Point is, things are subject to change. So let's get into the bullet points of this chat that I think are interesting. His main experience from living in the greater Kiev area, I believe, I'm not sure the exact area that he's at, but it's somewhere around there, it seems. So this is his testimony when the Russians, quote unquote, invaded. And he was saying that, hey, you know what? I got internet, I got phone, I got water, you know, everything that would normally be taken out in a war of extreme hostility and violence. That's not happening here. So he's saying he believed that the Russians were surrounding the city in the area in order to capture it, or that was what he thought initially. And that they're not trying to destroy everything like in USA invasions. So when the media is saying that the Russians haven't captured Kiev because they're ineffective and they have old technology and they're losing, well, are they used to Operation Kick-Ass where they go in and blow everything up and it's like Team America, World Police parody, right? Not to be flippant about war and dying, but you get the point. And so he's saying that people are being used as human shields in this war and that the refugees who want to get out of Ukraine are actually more scared of their own government than the Russians. Now, whether that's true or not, you'd have to interview the refugees. Maybe it's just the ones in his area and the general sentiments of the people around where he lives. He's kind of just painting a broad stroke here. But he's also saying that people are likely going to be forced to fight if they're caught by the Ukrainian army, if they're in a particular age range. He's saying males from 18 to 60 are liable to be recruited, and that civilians are being given Molotov cocktails and AK-47s with practically no training. Or how can you train somebody to use an AK-47 in like two days or something like that? And I've seen some footage of training going on, and this is even in the Western media, so it's not like that's being hidden. Um, some of it might be fake news in the sense that they're trying to portray this or that, right? Like the women at the front lines and they have an airsoft gun in the picture, but nobody knows the difference. Who's the average Joe watching it? These are all things James talks about on the blog post. But the point is, if that's true, then they're arming citizens with little to no training. And that's extremely dangerous, especially if you're fighting a professional army. You're going to get yourself killed. So there's another story corroborating the Ukrainian army forcing people into battle and perhaps threatening them if they don't. Whether that's true or not, take it for what you will. So Mr. Lira is a believer in the idea that they would love to see dead Ukrainians so the Western media can take pictures of it and gain sympathy and send more and more forces to cause more and more war. And this is incredibly dangerous and it is using the ukrainian people as cannon fodder so when everybody's saying we stand with ukraine you're actually just killing more ukrainians by allowing this to continue and a lot of this is reiterated on a video on james's blog where it's like 25 minutes of him talking by himself but in this ava bartlett interview he goes into deeper discussion on all these issues and he says that there was an army amassed to invade the breakaway republics, meaning the Donbass area of Luhansk and Donetsk. And he's saying that there were at least 60,000 troops ready to march into that area. And he estimates this because that's the amount that's been captured by Russia at that point, probably more. Again, where he's getting this information, I don't know. It's similar to what we heard from that colonel and other people. So maybe he's getting it from some of those types of people. I don't know. This is just what he's saying. You can believe it or not. Maybe it's all BS. I don't know. Now, he says that Russia's intentions, which are clear, we know what Putin said, he wants to demilitarize and denazify, and that civilians are not to be messed with to the best of their ability. Now, again, think about the footage of civilian buildings being blown up 
Is that because the Azov Battalion is hiding out there, and if there's reports of them going into civilian houses or taking over hospitals or other public areas and using that as their military base, then that would make sense. That wouldn't conflict with the story. Or are Russians just crazy and they hate all these people and are blowing up civilian buildings because they have bloodlust in their eyes? Or is it the Ukrainians that have the bloodlust and are doing that? At least the Nazi factions, right? Or the ones that have been radicalized by them. All things you can decide on your own. Continuing, he tells us that Russia does not want to destroy the infrastructure to the best of their ability. Again, if there's forces there, you got to do what you got to do. And he also mentioned in that solo video that the Azov Battalion was putting heavy artillery in the middle of civilian areas. So I guess if you had like a howitzer or something and you put it in a residential area, then the Russians obviously need to take that out. But setting those very difficult circumstances aside where you don't want to hurt civilians, but they can be intermingled with all of these Azov people. The footage that I've seen, they aren't hurting them and they're giving them humanitarian aid and they're even telling them the different places to go to go to safety. There's videos of this on James's blog as well. I think we mentioned some of them already. Now that could be fake or doing that for the cameras or it could be sincere, but in the heat of battle, there might be some civilian casualties and that's horrible and awful, but that is also the reality of the situation and who fomented this struggle, who brought this struggle about? Was it really the Russians or was it NATO aggression along with crazy Nazis who've been trained to go kill the enemy when the time is right for the rise of the Aryan race? And if the Russians view the people of Ukraine as, quote, their people, then they want to retain the cultural structure of the cities and they don't want to blow things up like the Allies did in World War II where they're bombing Dresden and civilians and all these beautiful churches are getting hit and stuff like that. Continuing, there's a few other things Lyra mentions that the Russians are trying to destroy the gas sources of the Ukrainian forces to make them immobile and destroy any weapons depots they have. And some of that's from airstrikes. Now, there's various footage I've seen to corroborate this, whether that's true or not. I don't know. There's also other military analysts that have said this. We'll talk about them later. So the point is, the Ukrainians can have all the tanks in the world or this or that, but if they don't have gas, then they can't use them, so they're kind of worthless. That would be the strategy. Again, whether that's true or not, I don't know. So Lyra believes, at least at the time of the interview, that the Russians were winning the war in reality on the ground game but the West and Ukraine was winning the PR war where they're convincing everybody that Zelensky's a hero and he's driving the Russians back and the women with their airsoft guns are the biggest terror to these Russian evil dictatorship forces of Putin, right? That's the Western portrayal, at least. But he's saying that the West is living in a fantasy land and it's not real and that the ground game is all that matters in the end. Again, I'm not saying he's right or wrong. That's just his take. And he gives some numbers. I don't know how true they are. I don't know where he's getting it from, but basically saying that the Russians are outnumbered by a lot, but they're still winning. Maybe, perhaps. And then he reaffirms, and you know, this seems to be true, that Mariupol is the area where most of the Azov forces are, and that's where most of the heavy, hardcore fighting is going on, and Patrick Lancaster can confirm that with his videos. I mean, maybe there's fighting like that going on somewhere else and no one's videotaping it. I don't know, but it seems pretty crazy in that area, so seems to be consistent. And of course, he's talking about the hospitals being taken over by these neo-Nazis to set up shop. Now, Bartlett talks about this a little bit in saying that when she was in Syria, and seeing the radical terrorists who the Western media called moderate terrorists, right? Mostly peaceful protesters. She's saying that they did this to fight Assad. They would take over a hospital and they would set up shop, but they would also make like a prison in the basement and take POWs and torture them and do bad things. And I guess cut their heads off. And these were the crazy ISIS warriors, right? And so she's saying the same playbook is happening here. And one thing I would mention, we talked about the tweet from CNN where in 2016, the bombing of an Afghanistan hospital by the West was, quote, not a war crime, according to mainstream media. Now, that could be true. What if the same thing was going on where these terrorists were taking over a hospital 
and that is why it was bombed. But if that's true, then why aren't they understanding that for this situation? They should know better than most. Is it because they don't care and they want to hate Russia and they're just going to not give them the same standards back and making up rules for thee, not for me, right? Now, I don't know if that's the case or not, but something to consider. Continuing, then Lyra goes on to talk about the people who fomented the conflict and brought about this war. And he says some very interesting things that I was able to corroborate and are very relevant to things like Hunter Biden's laptop, perhaps. So he was talking about the Jewish oligarchs financing Nazis, which sounds like a walking contradiction, but as we confirmed, that was true in particular instances with Koylamoyski, and that's who he's referring to. And he was talking about his connections to a particular gas company and Hunter Biden's connections to Burisma, and that he's all intertwined with this with Victoria Newland. And again, she's from a Jewish liberal Ukrainian immigrant family, and she's responsible for the coup. So there's another example. And again, these people are apostates from Judaism. They're not obeying the commandments. And to quote Rudy Giuliani, he's more Jewish than George Soros is or any of these other people that we're talking about. Now, to be fair, her grandfather was persecuted by a pogrom in Odessa in 1905, but that's over a hundred years ago, and the solution to that is to use literal Nazis to go attack Russia? It's just quite insane. So, if Hunter Biden and his laptop is connected to all of this, well, that makes a lot more sense, I would say. And this is all caught up in the impeachment, too, because remember, we talked about Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump trying to get Hunter Biden investigated, and then all these sorts of things happened and uh the idea that the the russians hacked this gas company and it's all involved in this so everything that the global elite left is doing themselves they're blaming it on everybody like donald trump and vladimir putin and whoever else dissents from the standard narrative continuing lira talks about how ukraine is very rich in resources and this is why the western interests have their sights on it but of course, they've turned it into a feudal state, and that's exactly what Putin was warning about. They don't want to be a vassal state of the West, and Ukraine is seen as like one of the poorest countries are having all this poverty. So how can it be so poor when it has all these resources? Well, is it being stripped of them by foreign interests, and then it's being propped up as this bastion of freedom and democracy, and then it has neo-Nazis clamping down on any dissent, while the West just rapes it of resources. I mean, it's really screwed up. And then they blame this on Putin and what he wants to do to Ukraine. He's going to destroy it of resources, and he's just an imperialist, and he just wants gas and oil and access to the Black Sea and all this stuff, right? I mean, think of how screwed up all this is. So they don't care about corruption. They just care about feeding Western interests and the beast or the dragon of NATO and US. And the knife is getting closer and closer to the throat of Russia. And then when NATO is talking about nuclear weapons or Zelensky's appealing to NATO for them, and then you have the whole biolabs issue, which was confirmed by Newland, and she was very concerned about it. And then they're fomenting all of this ethnic hate towards Russians with these neo-Nazi training camps. I know this is getting redundant reiterating these things, but it's really important to see how all these things connect and even though there's a lot of complexities here, it's actually quite simple, the things that are happening. Everything is moving to target Russia and then blame Russia for an invasion. Typical of the demonic activity, if you will. So he goes on to talk about the Nazis butchering ethnic Russians, and he talks about the POW videos that are circulating on TikTok. And, you know, they don't post their snuff films on YouTube. But apparently they're very proud and bragging about these things. And there's videos going around of them committing atrocities against these POWs. So I've heard, I haven't watched these because I really just don't want to. Now they might be fake. I'm not saying that they're real, but there seems to be enough of them going around. It's hard to imagine they're all fake, especially when we know what type of propaganda has been going around in Ukraine against the Russians. So 
we talked about the potential 2014 video of a freaking crucifixion of a Russian Christian on the Orthodox YouTube channel, whether that's true or not. There's other reports of videos with Russians, uh, POWs having their kneecaps shot or even uh, POWs being shot in their groins, uh, beheadings, a, a knife stabbing in some guy's eye, all these screwed up things I'm hearing about. And people are saying these videos are out there. I've seen links to them. I don't really want to watch them. I'm all good with that. You can check them out if you like, and you can go through frame by frame and see if you think it's fake or not. I'm not a film analyst, so I'm not going to do it and put myself through that torture. Now, I'm not saying that the Russian separatists, when they get their hands on a Ukrainian soldier, that they don't do messed up things to them back. I don't know, but is it as extreme and as often as what appears to be out there on the other side of the interwebs on Telegram, TikTok, and all these other uh, social media or video channels. But with all that speculation, we should bring it back to C-14's leader, the Karas character, and that they like killing people for fun, and NATO gives them so many weapons to do so because the neo-Nazis get things done, unlike the pride parades. Now, the important thing is, Bartlett chimes in and she talks about, again, the same tactics used by the terrorists in Syria, which we mentioned are deemed mostly peaceful protesters or moderate terrorists. It's the nice version of the terrorists attacking Assad. They just want a little freedom because Assad's such a dictator. And she says that it is precisely a minority of radicals who do get mixed in and they do get things done, but they use the chaos of general protests or even some legit grievances but they get taken way too far and it doesn't call for an overthrowing of the government and then apparently these ngos actually funnel the thugs in to turn everything violent and this reminds us quite a bit of some of the accusations of the january 6th event where you have a legitimate protest going on which is actually a mostly peaceful one especially in comparison to the quote-unquote summer of love where all these cities got burnt up. And then you have perhaps agent provocateurs or certain people go in, and even ones that have filmed themselves, like that Sullivan character talking about how to shoot a gun and how to put on your Antifa outfit and whatnot. And those guys, if they get rounded up, they don't get put in jail. They get released somehow because they're all these agents and then the people who get put in jail are like the new age viking guy and the person who stole nancy pelosi's podium they're just average joes going in there acting like tourists in the white house and it's almost like bill and ted walking into the white house or something and then those guys get thrown in jail for a year and you hear stories about them being very badly treated and not allowing to have legal representation and all these sorts of things. Now, I'm not an expert in all the January 6th shenanigans, but those are things that I have heard mentioned or people talking about have been going on. I would not be surprised. So, surprise, surprise, the government, when these crazy radicals rise up, they have two choices. They either attack them and the Western media demonizes them as evil dictators who are firing on their own people and using chemical attacks against them and stuff like that or they just capitulate and give up like in ukraine and then nazis take over and then a bunch of christians die whether they're russian orthodox christians or they're syrian christians or whoever else and we're not saying it's only christians dying in all these things but it is a consistency in all of these things that perhaps should not be related but what is related is nato overthrowing these regimes and then all of this kind of stuff goes on and happens and then the IMF comes in and rinse and repeat but of course Assad has held out he was not overthrown like the other people we've mentioned Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein and again we're not defending all of these people but we're just saying look at the other side and the standards and which one is actually worse even though we're all being convinced that the ones who are overthrown by perhaps the bigger monster are the baddest of the bad, and that the ones doing the overthrowing are the goodest of the good when it's actually the opposite. Now, I do know that Donald Trump has been caught up in all of this, but consider this issue. 
If you're surrounded by wolves and neocons and they don't want you to know any of these things because they thought they were going to have Hillary Clinton, they're going to try to coax you into this or that and give you faulty intelligence and things like that. So to give him the benefit of the doubt, I would believe that if he knew the real situation, he would not be doing these things. And it's very obvious that all of these factions who were probably planning on doing all these things, especially attacking Russia, were not happy at all having the orange man in the White House. And so there was one analysis by the Durand that made a lot of sense to me. It's as if Trump was taken to the brink and then backed off at the last minute when it could have been a lot worse. But there's still plenty of things to criticize, but consider that you have the highest level demons perhaps trying to steer him this way or that way. And then you have the whole impeachment nonsense and everything that goes with it. So considering all the factors going on around you, it's a miracle that anything got thwarted at all, in my opinion. But since I'm not an expert on the situation, let's move on. And Lyra talks about some other interesting things related to people, quote unquote, disappearing without a trace, or when they show up, they are not in a good way. And that's code word for dead. And he gives one example in particular of a mayor of a small town, a pretty irrelevant town, I guess, in Ukraine. And he was kidnapped from his home in front of his wife and children and was disappeared. And his corpse was found a few days later and he was shot in the heart and just dumped into the town he was mayor of. And this wasn't even an important town, but it was because he was, quote, too pro-Russian. I think he gave the name of the mayor in the interview. I don't remember. And he says that even people who are negotiators on the Ukrainian side, but trying to be more balanced on the issues are threatened and harassed, or anybody who has the suspicion of being pro-Russian might be under threat for an execution. And there are journalists disappearing. Now he says the journalists disappearing could be two things. They could actually be executed or you know, killed and drug out somewhere and thrown in a river or whatnot. Or they could have just gone underground because they know what happens to them and they're trying to report, you know, under the radar and behind the scenes. But more importantly, are some of them actually going to the Russian side because they're being protected? <laughs> so when they go to the Russian side, they're called Russian shills, but that's actually the only place they can really be safe. And that's probably one of the reasons that this Ava Bartlett lady, who is a Canadian or American or whatever, um, I guess she's been living in Moscow for a year or two. But does it make sense that it's probably a lot safer there, considering the circumstances, the situation, and the types of things that you're reporting? Or maybe she's a Russian bot. I don't know. Now, continuing, Lyra says something else that's interesting. And you might wonder how he knows this. But you can actually see certain things corroborating this, and I'll talk about that in a second. But he's talking about the Russians when they're capturing the Ukrainian army, they're actually kind of sorting them out, and they're asking them to lift up their shirts to see if they have any Nazi tattoos. So I would assume that the people with the Nazi tattoos get a little bit of a different fate than the other ones. And the reason I say this is because in one of the BBC documentaries on the Azov Battalion or the... Ukrainian Nazis rising and all that kind of stuff. They talk about how the kids or, you know, the 18 year old young men, uh, they want to protect their homeland and they want to clean up the crime in the area and provide for their family. So they're really having that natural male instinct for masculinity, but it's being misused. And again, in the BBC documentary, there's footage of them patrolling and stopping people from drinking in public or gambling, but when the cameras are on, they do it very politely. But when the cameras are off, or the security cameras are on, they don't know, they go in, they beat up people, and they're very violent. Now, these are the policing uh, brigades, but are those folks also being recruited to go into the war once the wartime has come, right? So these guys aren't used to carrying guns, or maybe they're just used to carrying handguns, and now they're being given an AK-47 and say, go get the Russians. And you can actually see some RT footage corroborating this. Now, you can say it's Russian propaganda because it's from the Russian news network, but they captured some Ukrainian soldiers, and they look like 
dudes that I kind of grew up with. They have like a champion hat on and they look like normal kids. And you can tell they're really humbled. Their, their heads are down and they're just saying, you know, we wanted to provide for our families. We wanted to protect our country, but we got recruited in the army and we got put in there by really sick people. And they, they're saying that we don't want to have anything to do with them. So this is obviously the Azov superiors. And you can tell that these were some of those kids that were probably recruited for the local police force. And now they're realizing what it's really all about. And then once they're captured by the Russians, they're actually treated rather nicely. They don't look like they've been beat up. They have their clothes and they even say that they've been treated adequately. Now you could say they're lying because they're in captivity and the Russians are pointing a gun to them saying, yes, tell them that you're doing very well. You could say that. But their general demeanor indicates that it is what it actually looks like. I have that footage on the YouTube playlist, but it does corroborate with what Lyra's saying here. Now, I'm not saying every single sorting out is this nice and particular, but there seems to be some evidence for it. That's my point. And there's a few other things Lyra talks about that are kind of interesting. He talks about fake footage versus real footage. Since he's a film major, he talks about some of the issues with that. I'm not going to reiterate it. You can go listen uh, to the video or the interview yourself. It's kind of common sense stuff. And he talks about the farce of Zelensky and his photo ops looking like he's a military leader. And then they talk a little bit more about the shelling of Donbass and Donetsk missile strike where there's cluster munitions which are prohibited in warfare and they're basically uh, arms or weapons used to take out a lot of people and it's being used on civilians. And this is all, again, between 2014 to the present day. And Bartlett confirms that these kinds of things were happening, or she saw a lot of this when she was in her three-week stay in that area before uh, the war broke out and Putin invaded, or Putin came in and is finishing the war, and the war broke out in 2014, whichever way you're going to look at it. So let's move on from Lyra, and we're going to go quickly into an interview on the Duran with this analyst, John Ritter. He apparently has a military background, and he, like Colonel McGregor, was part of the American military and supported the Iraq war, but criticized its management and said it was mismanaged. And he has a lot of interesting things to say. Now, I will say when I looked into him, he was caught in some sort of sex scandal, but it's not like he was caught with like a young boy or something like that. I think he was caught on camera or being online with like a 15-year-old girl, and he said that he was set up. He didn't know how old she was, but she was really a government agent. But she wasn't 15. She was posing as a 15-year-old. I don't know what it was. It's something like that. Again, I'm not defending the actions, but that's very different from being caught on Epstein's island, if you will rather than some virtual experience or whatever it is. <laughs> so we'll move on from that. But is that what happens to people who speak out? They try to set you up based upon your vices and things of that nature. So the interview is like two hours long, and he talks about the military strategies of the Russians and what he thinks has happened. It's a very interesting analysis. A lot of what he said makes sense to me. He broke it down in a way that I guess the common person could understand. They don't have to be a military analyst. Now, whether he's accurate or not, I don't know. You can decide for yourself, but I think time will tell. But if you'd like to check it out, I think it's worth listening to. But the fog of war points that I think are worth extracting from the interview are that he thinks that the Russians have been very, very clever in waging their war and that they have the upper hand. Now, the Western media will tell you the opposite, but I do think it's very telling when Putin made his demands in trading to hostile countries in the ruble, because if you're losing the war in reality, why would you make tough demands like that? It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Now, obviously, you can see the United States doing that, where they're making all of these extravagant claims or whatever, and they might be losing badly, but they have a history of being utterly hypocritical. I'm not saying that the Putin regime has never been hypocritical, but I'm just saying, look at weighing it out in the balance is one weighing down into the abyss of hypocrisy. And one is in the realm of what's at least more reasonable based upon running a country 
or at least what we've seen them say has matched up with a lot of the evidence. So it's been more honest, despite deceptions are going to be here and there everywhere in any of these situations. Again, things you can ponder on your own time. And we're going to finish up this segment with a few bullet points extracted from another interview by Ava Bartlett with Alex Christophero from that Duran group, because I think some of these points are interesting. Some are corroborating what's already been mentioned, and there might be a few additional insights that I think are useful. And one of them in particular comes from Bartlett, who goes a little bit more into her three-week trip to Donbass area in 2019. And she says that she was located about 400 to 500 meters from Ukrainian forces, and that they were being shelled, especially at night. And again, you can see footage on BitChute that corroborates this. And obviously the news of a ceasefire has not seemed to have reached them for some odd reason. And that the Ukrainian Nazi battalions were going street by street, destroying houses. And if you just get unlimited weapons from NATO, then I guess you can do that, especially if you have superior forces and the backing of the entire Western media to whitewash any dissent or anybody trying to show otherwise. And if the Russia man bad narrative has been going for a while, who's going to believe it anyways if you just say that it's Putin's fault? Everyone's just going to believe it, right? And she said in her experience there, most of the people living there were elderly and they didn't really know where to go. And they basically just chose to stay and be terrorized on a daily and nightly basis because where else are they going to move to? And with the Western media being silent on the neo-Nazi involvement, that over the course of these eight years, around 14,000 people have been killed in this conflict. And it's basically a genocide, right? I mean, yes, you're defending yourself, but to act like these pro-Russian separatists are some giant threat, it seems to be a bit erroneous in my opinion, especially when there's mostly civilians there. And she says that they've been subject to shelling, machine gun fire, sniping, horrific crimes. Uh, they have to walk through certain areas where they wonder if they're going to be sniped. Some of them, when they are interviewed, they don't want to give their names. They don't want to show their faces because they think if it gets out, they'll be seen walking down these death row corridors and will probably be sniped. Um, and again, that there's tapes of killings from the Ukrainians against these people circulating and being boasted of they're bragging and again just look at the c14 leader who says they have fun killing why wouldn't they make tapes and brag about it i mean that's what the demons do they boast and they expose themselves through their pride and obviously that manifests in an influence through people who cooperate with that and she talks about the decapitations the mass graves and again all these things she talked about seeing in syria it's the same playbook It's the demonic playbook, if you will. And she's part of a group, or has been, that's trying to raise a tribunal for war crimes. And I think it would be an amazing thing if that would be put together. Because if you were able to bring war crimes, not only against all these Ukrainian Nazis, but the West's involvement, that could be something that could take down the whole darn system pretty quickly if you got enough support And maybe that's part of some of the strange Fatima stuff in a time of peace. I don't know. We'll speculate on that in the members' videos or segments. And then she talks about the people who did report all these things, and many of them disappeared, and she saw the same things in the battles against Assad. She also mentioned how John McCain went into Syria, and was he meeting with the terrorists, saying, go get him, it's the year of offense against Assad? Because we know he showed up at the Maidan revolution and then showed up later with Lindsey Graham. I mean, he's all over the place doing all this stuff. And it was either him or Obama in 2008, right? But they seem to all be part of the same types of things. And more importantly, since he resides and has influence in Arizona as a former senator, you wonder if that had something to do with the funny business in the 2020 election in Arizona. Now, I know McCain died a few years back, I believe in 2018, but nevertheless, you wonder if there's particular connections there that have been looming since then. 
And what's really interesting about McCain, I was reading a particular Politico argument where in 2017, McCain was blasting Donald Trump for ending covert training of Syrian rebels. <laughs> he seemed pretty upset by that. And surprise, surprise, he called this move by Trump a giveaway to the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, because Putin was helping the Assad regime. And you might wonder if this was actually a righteous move based upon what was actually happening against him. And that perhaps Trump didn't see the picture too clearly, but he was still a monkey wrench in the system nonetheless. And of course, McCain was also attacking Trump on his policy in Afghanistan. And we know how that's all tied up in this. So they seem to be very concerned with all these foreign affairs rather than national ones. And of course, you know, we're internationalists in America. We don't have borders. But it's very important that we support Ukrainian nationalism where Nazis are. You know, their nationalism is okay for some odd reason. And last thing we'll mention here is that the feud between Trump and McCain was still being talked about by the media after McCain died and everybody's chastising Trump for making not-so-fond comments about him post-mortem, basically saying he was not a fan of him and blamed him for the war in the Middle East that he pushed so hard for and that McCain didn't get the job done for the vets. And of course, this was dividing the Republican Party, according to the media, and you can't have that for some reason, which is a little odd because you would think that the Democrats would love to have the Republican Party divided so they would win more. But when it's Donald Trump doing that, well, apparently it's a big problem because people might be <laughs> siding with the better sort in the Republican side and actually seeing the conservatives or neocons versus who actually cares about the country, even if they are imperfect the great parting of the Red Sea that we talked about in apocalyptic elections. But back to the interview and operations in Syria. Well, apparently the Russians were also having some operations in Syria. And like we mentioned, uh, they were helping Assad. And here's the interesting thing. Bartlett was talking about how they were setting up humanitarian corridors, trying to get people out of the conflict that were civilians and they were trying to find diplomatic solutions and working with the military. And she gives credit for the Russians for doing this and then keeping ISIS away from Damascus. I guess they were surrounding this area and the Russians stepped in to help at the last minute. Now, this is what she's saying. I'm not an expert on the situation. But I found an interesting article in the Israeli newspaper, the Haaretz of all places, that was saying that if you're anti-Assad, you support the murder of Christians. So apparently Assad's regime was protecting Christianity. And does that have something to do with the reasons why Putin was helping him? I don't know, but you could perhaps make the argument if he's trying to create some sort of Byzantium 2.0, uh, however much that might offend Roman Catholics. Nevertheless, if we just bring it to the sacramental church, the Orthodox of the East, the Orient, and Rome, then perhaps all these things kind of make sense. So this article is from 2017. I'll put it in the references file when I get it together. And it's talking about how Jews in Israel are supporting the murder of Coptic Christians and Christians in the Middle East in general, and not just the killings that occurred in Egypt last Sunday. I'm not sure exactly what they're referring to. But he basically says that anyone attacking Syrian President Bashar Assad is encouraging the murder of Christians in the Middle East and the entire world. So it is too bad that Trump was caught up in all this, but we will give him the benefit of the doubt that he was not getting the best of intelligence because I can't see him supporting these things if he knew what was really going on. And he was obviously battling with the best of the best of the neocons and the warhawk John McCain and everybody else. So we can uh, give him a little bit of slack here. Uh, in that context. So I would recommend people listen to that interview. It's very interesting. There's more we could go into, but we're going to wrap this segment up. And the last thing we're going to end on here is just reiterate some of the things we mentioned before about the Buka massacre question and what actually happened here. Now we mentioned the timeline where Russia leaves, I believe on March 31st, 
when we started releasing these podcasts. And when they left, the mayor of the town said they're gone and didn't report anything about any massacres. And it took several days before anything was said about it. And then when the Azov Battalion shows up, all of a sudden, there is a massacre to be photographed and presented for Western media. Now, there are suspicions about this. Did the Azov Battalion show up and start shooting people who they thought were helping or collaborating or even being neutral to the Russian forces? And then they used that to stage the massacre and blame the Russians? Was there some other staging production? Or did the Russians do it? Who knows? But I think Mr. Kustafaro made an interesting point when people were debating this, because he said that Russia was one of the first to say, let's investigate this scene and see if it was a genocide by Russian soldiers, and saying, let us call a tribunal and get this going and do it now. And so Mr. Kristofero said, well, I think you get a pretty good indicator about what's going on if the West, if this truly was Russia, they should jump on that opportunity and investigate so they can prove that Russia was committing war crimes. But apparently that hasn't happened. And then you wonder if there's going to be an investigation. Will it be like the election fraud investigations that just want to recount the vote and not actually go into what actually needs to be investigated? And that's what was fought so hard in Arizona. And I believe it's still going on to some level, even though they finally got the audit and are dealing with the results. But setting that aside, is it a similar paradigm? So I don't know what happened. I'm not telling you what happened. You can believe what you'd like. I'm sure we'll find out someday. Or maybe it will be one of those things that will always be a question and people will argue about it forever. But it is very suspicious in that context. And I am leaning much more to the side that the Western media isn't being very forthcoming on that event and is trying to pin war crimes on Russia. I could be wrong. But just given the track record of blaming other people for their own crimes and the funny timeline and not really jumping on the opportunity to investigate, those are all rather big red flags in my opinion. So that wraps up our fog of war segment kind of jumped all over the place, but that's kind of the point. It's very hazy. There's a lot of things being reported. Who knows if Russia is getting decimated or the Ukrainian army is getting decimated or it's a back and forth. I don't know. We will find out. But I think it's important to take any reporting coming out during this time in context with everything that we've been over leading up to it. And that might help you make a more informed decision on the current events that are very chaotic and very hard to discern during this very strange time. <laughs>